Hello, everyone. Welcome to a double size podcast here on Trek No Babble. This is Matthew. And this is Kevin. And we're going to do Workforce Parts 1 and 2 from Voyager Season 7, Episodes 16 and 17. So we're into the home stretch here as far as Voyager is concerned. Um, why don't we start the episode right away instead of prefacing it? So get your media ready, whether it's on Netflix or whatever the hell they're calling CBS All Access by the time you hear this, or uh, any of you curmudgeons like me who still have discs, uh, we will press play simultaneously in three, two, one, press play. All right, Futuropolis. Um, they've got some walking people in this CGI model. It's okay. The water is clearly, you know, mid to late 90s CGI. Yeah, the water's not great. The bridge is pretty good. I like the I like the structure of the bridge. Well, and they integrated this sort of factory setting pretty well. There's a lot of good extras, blue and purple people, clearly aliens. This is obviously a digital map, but it doesn't look bad. And then we see Janeway. Uh yeah, this, this elevator is an interesting effect, too. She's, she has a blowout, so it's clearly not normal. Something's different. Yeah. A little turbo lift effect is pretty well done. Um, it, it does look like a factory in a video game as opposed to, like, an actual factory, but I'm not, I'm not mad. Yeah, it's kind of Final Fantasy VII-ish. Yeah. So, you know, this is already a very strange teaser yeah. uh, you know so the trek fans among us might be thinking okay are they infiltrating some society are they observing some society um that is not a flattering outfit and it's not it's not kate Mulgrew's fault that is a very crinkly shiny material and i get it because it's supposed to be alien but it's it's and, and it's not doing this gentleman here any favors either it's just a it looks like you made it out. It's like you tried to do fitted pajamas, and it's it's not flattering. I don't know. I, I mean, I think she looks pretty good. She she is a... working. It's just the the material is crinkling in a way that is I. I it, it's one of those things that's always going to look like you slept in it. Okay. I can see what you're saying. Um, but I, I like the implication that whatever's been going on has been going on long enough to give her. What an extra two inches of length in her hair that it's I appreciate small touches that tell narration well, and that is one of them. Hmm. That's interesting. That's a good point. So the the sort of kicker of the teaser is her saying, you know, this will be way better than the place I last worked. And so as the viewer, now you're starting to think, oh. Well, maybe this isn't some sort of undercover mission. Maybe this is something else. Um, I think it's an effective teaser. I, I, you know, I, I think Star Trek has always done well situations where the the characters are taken out of their normal milieu and placed into a different one. And Star Trek, of course, can support those stories, whether it's a time travel story like City on the Edge of Forever or Time Zero uh, or it's some sort of uh, mind control or, you know. So 
I'm already invested. You know, I'm into it. Um, my question is, could this story and should this story have happened earlier in the series? Because we're almost at the end here, you know? Uh, I, I see the argument. Um, you know, spoiler alert for the, the general story here. They've been kidnapped to be, uh, what, dragooned, I suppose would be the word, into some, you know, alien workforce. And maybe there's an argument to be made that if, this, like, it, it's clearly a fairly, uh, you know, successful, prosperous enough post-industrial society. Maybe if this had happened in season two or three, part of the tension is, do we stay? Well, I mean, I think that that is supposed to be the question here. Um, Janeway is the focus character, you know, yeah, but the, and, but, and we're jumping. And he's given a life that is pretty happy. Yeah. She's got a boyfriend who kind of yeah. looks like Mark, which is weird. Uh, you know, like she's, she's, they're living together, you know, and right. she the reason to stay is him. Um, yeah. It's fun watching Janeway get to be, you know, generally competent, or she is. Um, I swear to God, that little plasma thingy that I saw at every Spencer's Gifts <laughs> in my childhood, it's, it's, it's a running joke. Every advanced civilization must have one of those plasma disc thingies. It's yeah. I guess it's to indicate that there's lots of power running through these things. I wonder if they put like a green filter on it for Borg stuff. Um, here is our uh, hunk of man actor, Gray Silver Fox here. Looks like a Viagra commercial or something. No, Cialis. So he's more of a Cialis. No, no, yeah. He, he's sitting in a bathtub in a forest for some reason. Yeah, totally. Um, I do also like the, like, I don't like the running gag that Janeway can't work a replicator because it's a dumb joke and it's bad writing. Um, but I do appreciate that they are mimicking it. Um, with this piece of technology, her like technology whisperer. Um, here comes Seven. Okay, she's not unattractive in this hairstyle, but they did manage to find a neutrally flattering hairstyle for her. Like, like I don't know what it is about this bun that's not doing it for me, but or maybe it's just I find it a little lazy to be like, oh, she's even more severe. Look how severe her bun. I yeah, I, it seems clear they're going for a severe. You know, like school marm who will wrap your knuckles with a with a ruler, type. Um, like like a, a woman this efficient wouldn't spend that much time on a bun. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe with future technology, you can just wash it without undoing it. I don't know. <laughs> okay, I think what I what I do like about this episode is it's one of those like actors playgrounds like. Like, an actress like Kate Mulgrew is just having fun here. She's getting to play different characters. She's getting to engage in a different set of motivations and backstory. You, like, you know Kate Mulgrew was in her trailer coming up with a backstory for the fake character she's playing. And like, yeah, so it's, absolutely. That's fun to watch. It's a very actory thing. Okay, now we've gotten to Tom Paris, and this is my first... I can't decide if this is a problem or not, but the way Paris acts is that they it, it clearly is supposed to indicate, you know, Janeway is smoothly competent. Seven has a stick up her ass. Paris is a roguish ne'er-do-well. Like, 
We've managed to delete their memories, but not their personalities or their capacity. It, it's it, it's just one of those. This is a very specific. Like it, it becomes one of like. Do you remember the? I'm trying, thinking back to the other major selective memory deleting episode of TNG's Conundrum. It becomes one of those. Wouldn't the people who were capable of this granular degree of mind alteration? Just already be cues. Yeah. So the the technical aspect of the sci-fi definitely vexes me to some degree. Um, before we go there, uh, this is Iona Morris, uh, who I think does a great job as the bartender. Yeah. Um, she apparently was one of the children in Miri from TOS. Oh. Uh, so this her, popped up. Good for them. I'm glad they're still working. Yeah, this is her second Trek role. Uh, she has plenty of other credits to her name, nothing huge. Uh, but she's a good character actress, and I think they've got a good chemistry with each other. Uh, you know, I think Robert Duncan McNeil's doing a good job. You know, the, the appeal of the story is how much of who they are is just who they are and how much is based on their situation in Voyager. If you take them out of Voyager, who are they? You know, so you have Tuvok here, you know, yucking it up at the bar, telling jokes and stuff, uh, which it's a fun change of pace, but then it also raises the question, uh, you know, I, I guess they've taken away his memory of his culinar and his emotional control and Vulcan culture and stuff. And so this is just who he would be but, anyway. But they, they tend to paint my interpretation of Vulcan emotion and, and emotional controls and the cultural edicts around it are that Vulcan emotions are a physiological extreme. So if Tuvok were casually not being Vulcan, he would just be a rage machine. I think, Here's my, like, this is the thing, though. They like to do this to Tuvok, like they do it with Tuvix and Riddles, where it's like, oh, isn't it fun to make Tuvok not the stoic one? But that's the only character whose personality they alter? I think that actually would have been a more fun extreme. Like, what if all, like, what if part of the um, process to hide their true personalities was to have them behave radically differently. And I think that could have been a fun game for everyone to play of like, like make Tom the uptight bureaucrat, make seven the fun loving one, make, make Janeway the, the, I don't know, I, the new season of Archer just premiered, make her the Cheryl of the group, make her like the, like incredibly narcissistic, vaguely incompetent one. Like, I, I think that it could have been fun to really, rattle the cage because except for two like except for Tuvok we're just watching all of these characters in a different milieu but basically the same character I think what we're supposed to take from it is that this would be what Tuvok would be like without his mental and emotional discipline you know he's he's not like throttling people in the bar but he is kind of like a frat bro douchebag, you know, he's like slapping people's backs and laughing obnoxiously and, you know, just carrying on. But, but I feel like that, that fundamentally misunderstands what Vulcan stoicism is about. Yeah. My question 
from a technical perspective is what do the members of Voyager's crew think their previous job was and where do they think they're from? You know, like, what is this, what is their story to the characters? Where does Janeway think she's from? Well, she thinks she's from Earth. Like, she, she explicitly mentions Earth. And again, I, I get what they're going for here. They're, they're trying to, I think it's one of those, you know, the, the best lies have a bit of truth in them. So they are painting these fake backstories with, a fair amount of actual biographical details, which would make the lie more convincing. Yeah, Tom Paris's backstory is like that also. Although he, for for him, they said he he hates flying, like he can't stand being in a ship because it makes him feel sick, which is weird. <laughs> like that's his that's his thing. That's the thing he does really well. Um, so it, yes. There, there are lots of questions. It's not airtight. <laughs> like you say, the amount of resources and time and effort that go into prepping 150 people like this just seem overly complicated to the point where it would not be as efficient as just looking for people who actually... Right. Not to, not, not to you know, lean too hard into a philosophy I disagree with, but wouldn't a society this abundant just attract people in the free market to, to have jobs? Well, I mean, it would be interesting if they were to say something along the lines of, uh, you know, in terms of stellar distances and, and, you know, like this place is just, it has a relative dearth of sentient beings, you know, in this area and the surrounding systems or something. Uh, you know, like, the politics of such a world would be fascinating to me. Wouldn't they be really pushing people to have like 10 kids, you know, uh, with incentives and things like that? That's what the Soviet Union tried to do. Um, they actually gave out medals uh, called, uh, oh, what was it? Hero Mother of the Socialist Republic. Um, and you would, you would get this medal if you had 10 children and each of them lived, I think, to the third year of their lives 10 kids like that's and you get a stipend and stuff but so yet again we have the um the trope of people on the away mission so the people on the away mission either are the ones who get into the problem or they're the only ones who don't get into the problem and that's obviously what's happening here uh by the way this is a very nerdy reference but uh, fans of Star Wars PC games of the 90s will recognize uh, the two names here, the Quarren and the Nar Shaddan. So Nar Shaddaa is a smuggler city in the Star Wars Jedi Knight games. Mm. Uh, and the Quarren are one of the races in Star Wars. So it, it's, it's clear that they're, someone on this staff played those games and liked them a lot and is going for it just with the names. Nothing else is similar. They're not really taking anything else from it. This isn't Kurtzman Trek at all, after all, um, which apparently stole stories for both the uh, Tardigrade and Mass Effect 3 for uh, Discovery Season 2. Or no, sorry, Picard Season 1. I do really, really like this part of the story. 
This is picking up on the doctor as the emergency command hologram. And I think it's similarly a fun role reversal for him. It does raise the question, can one person just run the ship with the computer? But, you know, that question has been asked and unanswered <laughs> for many other Star, Star Trek stories. Uh, whether it's Remember Me or um, all sorts of situations. Robert Picardo was great. Oh, yeah, yeah. Watching him be frustrated with the ship is great. It, you know, really, he's a perfect uh, pompous straight man type. You know, yeah. the, the person who is aggrieved by comedic situations and doesn't like the fact that he's sort of the butt of the joke. Um, so, I, you know, I really like, I like this part of the story. I uh, like, I would like, I would like it more if I liked Harry or Chakotay more at this point, because here, especially at season seven, Harry hasn't done enough to be interesting after seven years and Robert Beltran is clearly checked out. So I think I would have enjoyed this more if it were, if uh, even if either one of them were replaced with Bolana or seven or someone, uh, I, I just would have enjoyed this more. I, I agree with everything you said about Robert Picardo, but I um, like when the story tells me this is the staff to save, save the day. I'm like, eh, it's, it's fine. It's, it's fine. But I'm not going to be like, ooh, this is going to be good. It, it just, it's just not where I am. All right. So they hit some sort of subspace mine. He transfers himself to the mobile emitter, but everybody's gone. No, wait. He's inundated with casualties, a radiation poisoning. Um, it, it's a fascinating way of kidnapping an entire crew of an extremely advanced starship. Yeah, so they have to they have to evacuate the ship. Oh, they didn't do the pips materializing on his shirt. <laughs> That's too bad. It makes sense because of course he's not really a captain, he's just sort of in interim command. And so once they're in the escape pods, which I guess can hold the entire crew, 150 people. Uh, well, it's, it's, you know, it's 400 years after the Titanic. You're, you, you need enough lifeboats for everyone on board. Yeah, nobody has to hang on the side. There was a Mythbusters about that, by the way. And apparently um, James Cameron did his research and knew exactly how much weight the piece of wood that uh, Kate Winslet was on could support. And it actually could not support Jack just hanging on the side. It, they tested it in multiple multiple methods and it did sink if he hung on. So he did have to sacrifice himself. Now, you know, that always bugged me. I was like, why the hell did he let go? Just just like hang on to the side or take turns. I still, they could still take turns. Yeah, anyway. <laughs> I'm trying to so so here I am watching it. It seems that the 
people capable of engineering all of this would have also been able to capture the ship. I suppose the point is with the doctor successfully in command, they could get away, but I, I don't know. And is that, is that model the Breen ship that, that feel that looks very Breen to me? It does look similar. Uh, I like the flashback structure. I always enjoy when they can do a flashback that sort of updates you but doesn't take too much time out of the episode. It's efficient. It's not, it's not, it's not earth shattering narrative, but it's, it's good. Well, it just, it makes the story feel bigger than having to sort of go through it from point A to point B. Um, I've always liked these spacesuits, but it really still bugs me that the grills look like someone poked them with a, with like a toothpick. And it's it doesn't look manufactured. It looks like a person did it. Uh, they're they're just not they're not perfectly spaced, and it, it bugs me. Uh, I, I always appreciated the spacesuit since first contact for being a good blend of form fitting but still substantial. Yeah, like it, it looks like it would be the modern iteration of a NASA spacesuit. Yeah, I agree. Well, and, you know, they're designed in such a way that you still get a really good look at the actor's face. Yeah. Um, you know, I don't know if in a real spacesuit you'd really want an LED light pointing at someone's face, but on TV it makes sense. Yeah, <laughs> yeah so they're in a Quarren medical facility. So the, the Delta Flyer traded with the Nar Shadan, and they are on... Quora or the Quarren planet. So they have elaborate medical facilities. They've got a large bureaucracy. It seems like this society kind of has it all. They never really talk about environmental degradation or, um, you know, the only thing they've got is a labor shortage. I suppose my other question is given the level of technological sophistication and the fact that most of these jobs seem fairly you know, yeah, it, stand it, here and monitor this thing. <laughs> yeah. This couldn't be automated. I, yeah. It no, is, it is one of the, it, like, here's my, here's my like lingering question about this story. It's, it's kind of like the problem was carefully reverse engineered for the setup to the point that it does kind of, undercut the dramatic tension so would it be better for you if they had been conscripted in this way to be part of like a a space navy or something like they, they were you know like yeah if, if there were some sense that the skills were specialized and couldn't be automated and couldn't be replicated and they were they, like they were trying to shortcut the work of training someone over 30 years of a career that would be like, yeah, like if I were drafted into this society to push a button once every 10 minutes for an eight-hour shift, that seems a bit of a waste. If I were conscripted to be a lawyer because that is a useful, that, that is the best use of my pre-existing skill set, well, okay, that makes a little more sense. It's, it is tedious and expensive to train lawyers. It's tedious and expensive to be trained as one. Um, so if you could just skip that, that'd be great. It, it maybe my other problem is this this feels like the idea of like like cannibalism does cannibalism exist as either a uh, weapon of war or ritual 
Sure. Does cannibalism exist as an actual means of feeding your people? No. Because whatever work it would take to feed the person you're eating, you could just use to feed yourself. So I, I, I just, I, the very specific nature of this does kind of keep driving home for me. Couldn't, well, you seem to have a lot of doctors doing this. Maybe, do you have too many doctors? Maybe train some of them to do this? Like, it just, the society that could make this thing could have some other means of solving this problem. Yeah. So um, I'm looking at the writing staff. Uh, both of these, so Workforce has a story by credit for Kenneth Biller and Robert Doherty. Or sorry, that's Critical Care, which I'm going to compare this to. And Workforce has written by Kenneth Biller and Brian Fuller. And there does seem to be a similar sort of theme, which is Alien World has economic problem and uses Voyager crew member or members to solve that problem. In critical care, it's the doctor. And we see, we get a, a look at this alien healthcare system, uh, which critical care focused more on the nuts and bolts of the healthcare system. Whereas this episode kind of papers over the nuts and bolts of this factory town and, and the planet and all that stuff. And it's more about it's kind of like Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, which had not yet come out at this point, uh, which is, you know, if you wipe a character's memories, are they still the same person? And I think the Tom and Bellano relationship is a good illustration of that question. So, yeah, I mean, the best parts of the episode are the fun little riffs on relationships. Totally agree. Um... It is weird watching what passes for, like, I'm not saying Tom's necessarily crossed a line, but 90s Star Trek, very subscribed, in various places, it did have many instances of, like, the, I'll just keep asking, and that's flirting. <laughs> and we don't, we don't think that anymore. <laughs> like, like, Bellana unambiguously shot him down, like, four times in that conversation, it's a very it's a very nineties way of writing the scene that somehow it might still work out. It's just something that strikes well, me. Well and he's like, What about just a friend? You know. Yeah. Mm. So I'm yes. <laughs> that's it's a little gross. Uh it's not a salty or rapey or trumpy. No, um, it's it's, but, it's just it's 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 like it, it make you, you podcast being a famously visual medium, I'm making like a scrunchy thing right now. Um, so who does Bellana think the father, uh, you know, like, these are the questions I have. Yeah, like, she yeah. knows she's pregnant. This is the second, we got her pregnant. Yeah. This is the second time this woman has had to be pregnant during a mind wipe. <laughs> the first time was because Roxanne Dawson was in fact pregnant. This time it's just, you know, it's like, huh. So as far as Robert Beltran goes, I actually think this episode represents a bit of a renaissance for him because he's in command of the ship. Uh, you know, he has to get a hold of the situation. And then he goes undercover on the alien planet as sort of the 
the infiltrator to to get back crew members um and he's got some good scenes which we haven't seen yet um and i do like the sort of tension that we're going to get between harry and the doctor i'm going to softly uh, disagree I, I i think renaissance might be too strong a word he is acting and he is not it's a brief strong. renaissance <laughs> it, um, it's just uh it's and, and I don't know, maybe it's just because, like, here's my thing. Every time the Doctor gets a story, the story is, what is the Doctor's personhood or something? So it just feels like Chakotay shutting down the Doctor a little feels like just, like, we're only here to do that. Here's your favorite oh. joke, Kevin. This looks like Meatloaf Kiev or something. Yeah, or some kind of beef Wellington, maybe. Well, there's like spinach inside it, and it's like chicken or pork on the outside. I don't, I don't know. Is it meat on the outside? Well, I mean, I don't know what it really is, but it looks like it's yeah. Meat. Is this is a nice set, and they did a good job with the sort of cityscape outside. It it feels like a real apartment building. That's a bit nondescript, but it's Very been turned gray. into a home. I wish, I wish the walls were not gunmetal gray. Yeah. Yeah. It also, I think they were clearly reusing the Starfleet Communications building from various uh, Earthbound <laughs> episodes of Voyager. And I will say, uh, alternate universe Catherine Janeway subscribes to a philosophy I think is very smart which Dan Savage coined, fuck first, you have sex, then you go have dinner. So that is just the correct order in which you do things. I feel you, girl. Um, so here's this, okay, this actually, now that we've gotten to like, you know, Chakotay trying to get the crew back from this planet, this also reminds me of that episode where Harry Kim was like, fooled into believing he was a member of this species because they like praying mantis them to death. It's like, mm -hmm. could you possibly encounter enough people? Like even 150 people, while a lot of people in a soccer game or, or, or a lot of people on an airplane is not a lot of people in a GDP calculation. So it just seems like, how could you possibly steal enough people to be a viable labor source without it being an unambiguous act of war for all of your neighboring systems? Yeah, it just seems like everybody should know about this place. You know, um, I, I guess when we get to sort of the plot being uncovered, uh, it, it's a minor conspiracy, and I guess it's not a normal way of doing things for this planet. Yeah. So right, it's they not haven't stolen enough people to, to be conspicuous. Like, it's just this, it's the, the factory owner guy and the doctor who's developed this incredible technology, uh, you know, working together to fill the staffing needs. Okay, I'm going to say this for 90s, dude. He was apparently pretty good. Janeway is giving real face there like she clearly had a good time so oh, I'm, yeah i'm yeah. happy she's worn out <laughs> yeah. uh, it's also for, like they cast the perfect 90s actor like 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 bring me a late 40s early 50s nondescript handsome man who might have once been the murderer on an episode of murder she wrote 
Yeah. <laughs> Which, coincidentally, Kate Mulker, I believe, was the murderer three times on Murder, She Wrote, so... <laughs> So this approach was, she, she says you don't give up, do you? This approach is better. You're going to invite me to take a walk by the river to your living quarters to admire the view. And he says, no, actually. He's going to introduce you to a pregnant couple. I'm like, oh, that's kind of nice. So it, they saved it a little bit. Yeah. I, agree that, I agree the previous approach was a bit on the creepy side. But this is like he's making amends for it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I suppose we, we you do question if it's still the ulterior motive, but you know. Oh, he still wants to bang her, but that's. I mean, what is that because of? You know. So I guess that's the other question. Like, it's in some places they're supposed to be repeating themselves because whatever core truth remains true, but then with other characters, they're the opposite. It. I, I and this is a, when you said Brian Fuller wrote this, that made a lot of sense because the core idea here is a very Brian Fuller story. Um, he he loves a good identity mishmash thing. Um, it maybe it's just like like if if we had had actually created a whole new Tom Paris or a whole new person. Would he really be jonesing that hard after a woman who's, you know, eight months pregnant? Well, that that's why I have to think that there's just some residual uh, personality thing that's compelling him to do that. I guess the other question is, why haven't the hospital people and the factory people scooped Tom Paris back up and fixed him? Yeah. So, he, so that he can work at the factory. Like they went to this, you know, huge, uh, risky outlay of effort and resources to acquire these workers. And he was just fired after one day. Uh, that kind of doesn't make sense. So reconstructive surgery, AKA Westmorehead. Yeah. Aren't Westmoreheads your specialty doctor? Why? Yes, they are. And that's like the least, it's like, it's like half, it's like someone started a Cardassian and gave up in the middle. <laughs> well, they just, they just took the putty and they just sort of pulled it in one area. That's about it. Maybe this would have worked better as like a way station of some kind or a, like, one, like one of those, you know, um, polyglot starbase conglomerate thingies rather than like a planet like uh like that place that neelix finds when he meets his friend and they almost get themselves blown up that kind of situation maybe it's the fact this is like a whole world that just kind of nags at me well i i did find myself questioning how uh tolerant this world is and maybe that's just a function of living in the time that i live in now but i'm just imagining you know living in this world and having everybody just be completely blithely accepting of aliens of a type they've never seen before uh just being imported en masse to take these jobs do they really have 150 openings 
I guess they've got 8,583 employees at a minimum here, but uh, is this a new part of the factory? Nobody else has been displaced by this? Well, I thought my read was, I, and I think they say this at some point, they, they were suffering some kind of catastrophic labor shortage. Yeah, it's a labor shortage. So my question is, would a labor shortage, would an economic condition, I mean, like, maybe these are just really tolerant aliens in the first place, and they're just not like us, <laughs> humans, <laughs> who hate each other, <laughs> members of the same species. Um, maybe they're just particularly tolerant, but would economic conditions subvert the sort of, uh, you know, identity politics type situation? They, it doesn't work here. Like, we need more workers. You know, we need people to do these jobs that no one wants to do, like pick the strawberries and, you know, clean the toilets and sew the clothes and, you know, whatever, right? And yet we still have massively destructive undercurrents and overcurrents of xenophobia and racism. <laughs> yeah, they're just currents now. It's just yeah. the currents. Yeah, yeah. for anyone listening to this, and again, I feel like I say this every episode now, but in whatever future you're listening to this to, Ruth Bader Ginsburg died today. So here's a little piece of time capsule for whatever hellscape the rest of the 2020s turn into. Yeah, I don't want to go down that rabbit hole. Uh, I watched Captain's Holiday earlier today after hearing the news, and it was nice. <laughs> it it, it like it was literally escapism. I laughed. I was with my kids. They enjoyed it for the most part. You know, Teddy more than Arthur, perhaps, because it's a little more of a uh, older story. Yeah, Vosh is a hoot. Yeah. Well, it's a character interaction piece, and the comedy is a little more uh, a comedy of manners type thing. Yeah. With Picard being the, the curmudgeonly straight man. Um. Anyway, I I really like Chakotay here. Uh, I like the sort of questions and you see him adjusting his yeah. strategy on the fly when he sees that, you know, that there's no memory. And so he, he tries to think of a different way of getting her alone. Uh, it, it works for me. Um, in the same way that Captain's Holiday really worked as escapism, I think this works as escapism. I have questions, but I'm able to just kind of go with it. I and here's, here's, my, here's my question at this point in the episode. Would it have worked better if we had dispensed entirely with the Voyager element and just, like, have we spent all the time we otherwise spent on Voyager with Catherine, with, with Catherine and then still have Chakotay come in in the guise, in the moment. And it's clear by context clues to the audience, oh, Chakotay's still himself. He's here to rescue everyone. Would, it, would that have helped with the immersion had we stayed in this world the entire time without ever seeing Voyager up to what is now minute 38? I think that, would, would, that would be interesting. I think, that it, would be, I think it would have helped. It would be risky from a syndicated television standpoint. Fair, like, like, I'm thinking back to um, Inner Light. Like, we, we did a couple, like, I'm trying to think, like, in Inner Light, there were, like, what, two interstitials, 
where they establish Picard is still on the Enterprise and experiencing this and that attempting to stop it harms him. But that was it. Like, we spent that episode immersed in his story. And maybe, okay, now that I've mentioned Inner Light and I don't want to jump the gun on my ultimate analysis, but I think that's what's missing for me. There's a level of immersion and a level of care that Inner Light created in one episode that this episode doesn't quite create into. I care about Janeway's interaction with, um, you know, with, with, with the, the Silver Fox guy, because he's, he's handsome enough. But especially, here's the thing, especially given that all the other characters largely replicated their Voyager role, like, like if nothing, maybe that's it too. Inner Light was like a meditation on Picard taking the road less traveled. Well, Picard also remembered who he was. Eventually. So, like, I think, I, I think that maybe that's what's missing for me. There's, there no, are... no, Kevin, Picard remembered who he was. Oh, from I see. Yeah, I, sorry, I see what you're saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so it was that tension where will he let himself go? Will so, he let himself Maybe as they dug in deeper into the personal narratives or let them play out other lives... I act like, and maybe that's why Janeway is certainly the most effective of the characters here because she is letting herself live this other life instead of being the, you know, heroic Starfleet captain at the bleeding edge of everything all the time. She's a, you know, what, mid-level, upper mid-level management type. She has a boyfriend, an apartment. She'll get a dog, I assume. Like, this is, this is... I, I think you can, I think there's a strong case to make. This is Catherine Janeway if she didn't choose to go to Starfleet. And that's what gives this a little bite. Like there's a, this is the closest these pair of episodes get to um, giving the sense of maybe I would stay here. Maybe I should stay here. And that like in Inner Light, what was so compelling about it, especially by, by the end, was that he had lived, what, you know, 30, 40, 50 years, had a wife, children, grandchildren. He had a real, subjectively to him, real life that mattered, that was a real competitor for going back to his life on the Enterprise. And I don't think they ever quite thread that needle with this episode. It's a fun setup. And it's very well acted and it's a fun, it's a fun detour, but I like, especially like thinking with the caliber of actors they have, like I think between um, uh, Kate Mulgrew and Roxanne Dawson, they could really infuse these stories with a sense of the what if. And I, and I, I think you nailed it when you said going that deep would have presented a problem for the, very syndicated uh, nature of the show that they wanted to to stick with. But I think that would have made it more fun. Like there's, there's, there's just more they could have done with this setup than they're going to do. I'm not saying it's unpleasant to watch. I'm just saying it, it's not, it's not for, for an episode that brings to mind so effectively inner light, it never achieves that level of, gut punch well okay just to push back on that a little bit Janeway's relationship with Jaffin is a relationship between two flesh and blood beings 
Picard's relationship with his wife and children and grandchildren is a simulation. Um, now it feels real to him, which does to me raise one of those questions of how could this species that has only just started chemical rocketry also engineer this, you know, intensely realistic mental simulation that feels <laughs> like life for someone and incorporates 50 years of experience into like 10 minutes. It, like it's an amazing technological achievement yeah, totally. that, that they, that they, uh, that they do. Uh, we're in the credits here of episode one. So we're going to switch to episode two momentarily. Um, so I, I think the difference the inner light the inner light only works because it's a question of whether Picard will go with it. He doesn't know that he's stuck in a simulation. He knows he's captain Picard. He knows he's from the enterprise. Uh, you know, the question is how much is this uh, like a fulfillment of something that he could have had or wishes he had, which they go back to in generations as well. All right. All right. Well, 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 I, will, well I should have stopped. I will respond to that by just saying, even in the four walls of inner light with those problems, they painted a story that made me feel more. I can agree with that. And I think it's probably because of the ensemble nature versus the solo character yeah. nature. All right. If, if they had gone with Janeway for a full, you know, 38 minutes of a 45 minute plot, we might have more to chew on. Uh, all right. So, all right, um, let's all right. pause right here and we're going to queue up our second episode. All right, we're back uh, for episode two of Workforce. If you are watching on Netflix, um, you may have skipped the credits from the previous episode. Uh, you should not have started the second episode just yet. We are going to start simultaneously at the point at which Majel Barrett says, and now the conclusion. So the, the flashback summary has passed and we're diving straight into the actual story of the second part. So get your media ready to go and we will press play in three, two, one, press play. We were talking about the inner light. Um, yeah, The Inner Light's a better episode. Like, look, there's not two ways about it. I think it mainly is because of the uh, focus on one character's emotional life. If we had gotten more from Janeway, in this part, I think there are some interesting scenes in which you can see that the character knows that there's probably something to what Chakotay is saying, but kind of doesn't want to accept it, you know? because she's happy, you know? So like, I, I think there's something to that. Anyhow, I really like these scenes a lot. These sort of action scenes. I like seeing the law enforcement of this world. I like seeing Chakotay revert to the sort of badass Maquis guy that he was at the beginning of the series. Um, that's another reason I kind of wonder why this wasn't a story that was told earlier. I, you know, like maybe they only had the, the story idea during their, you know, writer's room between season six and seven.
And I really do like this tension between Harry Kim and the doctor. I don't because I, uh, it's, it's too much petulance for me. Um, they're both being a little snotty about who's really in charge at a time when, dear God, not a, not the main concern. Um, I, I don't know. This just, maybe it's cause I just don't care enough about Harry and, the doctor is kind of like a lot of the doctor's stories have devolved into this kind of, you know, snotty insistence on recognition. Like, I, I don't know, just uh, a different pairing might've produced more of a result. I get what you're saying academically. It just doesn't kind of register in the same way. Uh, I do still wonder, you know, how much of the ship can be automated during other episodes. It seems like, shit tons of people are in engineering doing things you know fixing things making sure things don't fly apart and yet here you can have the two of them on the bridge and that's it i like the idea of chakotay being sort of a fugitive um janeway is being very solicitous and, and nice and friendly, which kind of fits her character. It, it is who she is. Yeah. He is a trusting person. She's an open person emotionally. Uh, she wants to make friends with people. She's an extrovert, you know, unlike someone like Captain Picard, who is an introvert. He, he's not a people person. He doesn't like people, <laughs> you know. Well, he, likes, he likes books. He likes knowledge. He likes learning things, but if he could avoid people while doing all that stuff, that would be great. Yeah, I'm you know? not people's biggest fan right now, so. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> people have their downsides. Maybe here's all of the stuff with Chakotay and the crew and the crew on Voyager is centered around the question, will they get the crew back? And obviously, they're going to get the crew back. So maybe the, like here's because here's the thing, the, and to go back to Inner Light, the question is: Is Picard going to go back to being Captain Picard? Obviously, just obviously. But even no, the in a, in, in, a, in what part of what makes that episode land with such a punch is the knowledge he will in fact go back to being Captain Picard actually makes that story more bittersweet and effective. Um, and that's, and again, I, I, I'm, I mean, I, I understand you, if you compare a lot of things to inner light, they're going to come a blacking. I appreciate that. It's a, it's an amazing hour of television. It's correctly regarded as one of the best, the show, the franchise collectively has done. I, I just think that's the element they're missing. And as much as I said, I recognize a Brian Fuller idea. I don't quite recognize Brian Fuller's hand in the story. Brian Fuller is very good at creating these kinds of weird, fun inversions of memory and identity and self and stuff, but then they're very anchored to the experience of those characters, and that's what gives that dramatic moment. This, this is like, it's a really neat psychological setup, but most of the action still tends to be a pretty straightforward crew rescue story 
and it's not badly done it's competently done but i i think there's a there's a there, there's a story here that could have really been a just been phenomenally effective as opposed to just competently enjoyable so is the thing that would have made the story really effective if people a, a larger number of people were sort of restored earlier and then had to make choices you know like is my life here better like i was a maquis member and all my friends are dead and now i've got this nice job and i don't have to worry about the cardassians anymore and maybe i should stay i mean there's 150 people we're only ever shown you know like four of them on the planet um you know like what does chell feel is yeah. he happy about going what home does that nervous woman from good shepherd feel yeah <laughs> what about ayala maybe ayala found it you know a nice alien babe to shack up with and you know wants to have kids or something so maybe if there were would would that have injected more drama if there had been a choice the choice is just sort of taken as as given here obviously people are going to want to go back yeah the voyager and earth right yeah also i suppose is it is it even possible to separate it like we're, we're at the explanation stage with the doctor and it's one of those is this kind of granular memory manipulation even possible like even i don't know it just seems like how do you separate out experience and skill like those are like i guess that there are parts of my brain that have things like knowing how to drink water or maybe knowing how to read or something but it just seems like i don't know how much you can separate out the experience the memories of how i learned things with the things i learned those like they, they aren't that bifurcated in my brain right yeah yeah, I think this, um, speaking from a, a philosophy of mind standpoint, um, this has a very late 20th century view of uh, the mind and the way memory works, which is uh, through a computer metaphor. Um, technological metaphors have actually been the dominant ways that philosophers and psychologists have looked at uh, mental processes for a since the industrial revolution, essentially, um, you know, during the, during the 19th century, there was a lot of writing about uh, the human brain as if it was a series of pneumatic, uh, you know, sort of tubes and, you know, th this pneumatic uh, pumping action was what created think thinking and emotion and things like that. And with the advent of uh, digital computers, computers that could, uh, you know, process things in terms of uh, symbols and bytes and things like that, that then superseded pneumatic metaphors and became the dominant metaphor for the way things work in people's brains. And really, neither metaphor <laughs> is effective or good. Your brain is not a hard drive. It doesn't store information, you know you probably can't delete information from your brain. Uh, you can only interfere with uh, the recall of the information. And even using the word information is, is a bad 
way of talking about it. Um, there, there's a wonderful article, if you're interested in reading it, uh, you, Kevin, or the viewers, I've shared it on Facebook before, but if, if you Google the phrase, your brain is not a computer, uh, you will find this article. I think it's an Aeon piece. Uh, and it's, it's, it's amazing because it gets into experimental um, sort of aspects of this question. And the way that people learn things, like you said, Kevin, is a much more physical process. Uh, so an outfielder in a baseball game doesn't learn the physics of where a ball is going to go. He or she just follows the ball with the muscles of their neck, the muscles of their eyes, you know, and does it over and over. And that creates sort of a, a pathway, for lack of a better term, yeah. in the brain. No, I, I remember this from a class in college that uh, they did an experiment with uh, chimpanzees where they like bound two fingers together. And when they studied the neural pathways of the chimpanzee later, they had different neural pathways because you adapted to that physical restraint. It was, and it's the same, yeah, like a baseball player has neural pathways dedicated to doing baseball that a non-baseball player doesn't have. Yeah, and it's not that they've stored information. Uh, in the same way, um, reading a book, you know, your brain doesn't store the words <laughs> in your long-term memory. Um, what your brain creates is pathways. And so that's why when you read a book and you want to have recall of it, you need to like read it out loud, take notes, you know, read it several times. You have to do the physical actions and your brain recalls the physical actions, not the content. It, you know, you don't encode Plato's apology into a series of bits that are stored chemically in your cerebral cortex. That's not the way it works. And that's why, you know, I would always say, I <laughs> say this to my students when they said, you know, they wanted to get a PDF or, you know, a, an ebook version. I'd say, look, you know, that's fine. I'm not going to stop you, but you will not understand the text as well if you read it on a screen. Physically having the book in your hands, feeling the pages turn, having a physical sensation of where a passage is in a book is key to truly sort of incorporating it into who you are as a person. You're not going to memorize the book, but I can tell you, having taught it 40 times, I can get to a passage, you know, in this book within five seconds based on feel. It's not that I remember which word comes after which, but I know the feeling that I had when I read the passage, the emotional response that I had, and I know the physical feeling that that's associated with, and then I can get there, you know? So this is a very long way of getting to sort of the question here. Is it possible to have this level of granular control over what people remember? Uh, maybe, maybe, but it also seems impossible to divorce their ability to, uh, you know, deal with a, a control console from all of the control consoles that they learned this ability from in the past. And what they were the doing. context what, in which it was. Right. And how they felt and who they had relationships with at the time. Right. And what songs they were listening to when they were on duty that one time. You know, 
Like if you take away all that information, what you are taking away is the actual physical pathway well, also, in which the memory and, it resides. And just the way we recall things is connective. We, you, you recall where I was, I was in the kitchen what, and I smelled bacon and we were talking about like, you connect the dots through your experience. If you divorce the experience from the memory, the memory is not retrievable. It's not really the memory, yeah. If you take away the physical aspect and you take away the correlative aspect, yeah, I totally agree. Yeah. Um, with that said, I love these scenes. I love these scenes of Belana sort of recovering well, even this, Roxanne Dawson just does an amazing job. Yeah, and this is actually a pretty, this does a better job of kind of like, like her seeing these places is what would jog the memory because this is actually where she lives. Like, yeah, like she put that mobile there, yeah. you know, or she had a feeling about it before and Tom was making peanut butter toast and she could smell the toast while she was looking at the bird of prey, you know, like, yeah, that kind of stuff. And that really speaks to us, you know, like these sort of esoteric questions of, you know, could you wipe these days of my experience, but maintain these days of my experience? Like that, that doesn't feel like anything, but seeing her in that space makes you think of times when your memory came flooding back to you, you know, unbidden because you heard a song or you smelled a smell, you know, uh, and that's really emotionally effective. I did like when they had um, that sort of flashback of the Borg cube. Yeah. You know, like that makes sense. That sort of thing makes sense. So yeah, I think from a, there's probably a way to tell this story that makes sense, that would make more sense without sort of this, you know, computer digital metaphor for memory. Um, they didn't do it. I'm not going to penalize them for not doing it because yeah. it's extraordinarily difficult and they have to tell eight character stories at the same time. Um, I really like the mystery aspect of the second part. I like the inspector character that they introduce, uh, Yerid, played by Robert Joy. It annoys me that they used what was clearly Roxanne Dawson's season one headshot because she hasn't had that hair in six years. I don't know why that annoys me. Um, oh, and where did they get the headshot? Oh, okay. <laughs> did they raid the computer? I don't know. Like, I really like these scenes. I like these scenes. Like I said before, I like these scenes of Janeway. She's doing great acting here. Her body is sort of closing because yeah. she, she's resistant to the idea of losing her life here, you know, and it's a credit to the direction in this episode that they could make a dark scene like this work so well. They lit their faces enough to give us contours that are still visually interesting. It's not the mushy like planet hell shit or the, the cave scenes in deep space nine where you're just like, what am I looking at here? You know, it's like, I know Odo's talking, but I, I kind of like don't care anymore. The, the, the apartment sets were surprisingly good. I agree on the, on the walls, you know, but having the cityscape in the backdrop, having the, the edge lighting on their faces, it, it really works for me. 
I was never bored during either of these episodes. And I, you know, I knew how it was going to end. Like you said, I, I know they're going to get back to the ship. Yeah. I, I, I'm sitting here wondering as we're watching it, would this have worked better as a single episode? Like, like maybe just trim out the Tuvok stuff and the seven stuff as, as well as they acted them. But if it were Bolana on the ship recovering her memories and Janeway on the planet being Janeway, we would have gotten the bulk of these two episodes and maybe that would have streamlined things a little. Well, so the other episode that this is somewhat similar to, um, what was the episode where the, the alien inspector played music all the time? Oh, um, Counterpoint. Counterpoint. So there's Counterpoint, and then there's the episode where Chakotay kept forgetting the blonde that he was into. So those two episodes, Counterpoint sort of has the, can Janeway have a romantic relationship and what is she willing to sacrifice to keep it? And the answer ends up being nothing. <laughs> In fact, she just wants to be the captain of the ship. You know? And then the other, the other episode where Ch Chakotay keeps forgetting this blonde woman. Um, oh, rem uh, Remembrance, I think? I think that's it. Ironically, I'm struggling to remember the name. Struggling to remember it, yeah. Anyhow, that gets into this question of, do emotions persist even when memories fail? Well, I think that, and I think that's very much the, like, mind-body duality, where, like, there's some metaphysical durable part of my consciousness that is independent of its physical form. And that, it, personally, that is not a view I subscribe to. My memories are a result of the physical matter of my brain. If you alter the nature of that brain, you alter the nature of the memories and my personality. Um, but it's very, um, it's this idea that I, like, I love you so much that that love will tr uh, transit past the physical, uh, my physical brain that, feels that love like yeah I, I i think that's really what it is so this this to me does not cross that boundary um it doesn't get into foofy mystical mind body dualism stuff you know um like tom paris is into balana but they, they never go there with the story in which like Tom Pierce is like, I, I just don't know why I'm so drawn to you. You know, he never says that he's just into her, <laughs> you know, which is weird, especially cause she's pregnant. You know, normally that would be a big, you know, red light, uh, red flag for a, a strapping man about town looking to sow his oats. You know, it's like that field's already been sown, you know, don't go there. Um, so I, I enjoy the story and I enjoy this as a detective drama, you know, like I like the way that Chakotay is, you know, trying to shout these pieces of information, you know, 
he's being given little breadcrumbs and he's trying to follow him up. I really like his character. Yeah, maybe there's just too many, there's too many threads going on. Like there's a, um, I'm also thinking of, not for any particular plot reason, but I'm thinking of uh, the episode First Contact. There's something about like all the people wearing the same colored smocks in a hospital setting that makes, uh, it just, um... oh, see, see, this is a good scene, like like what we're, what we're talking about. Like she's eating her favorite, Neelix is making her her favorite food. That is a visceral sense memory. There are many foods that when I eat them, I think about the things that happened the other times I ate them or the feelings that I associate with those foods. This, this works. Um, well, and I got to say, they've got Balana reading Tom's personal logs, which totally fits with Balana really pushing boundaries, ethically no speaking. <laughs> <laughs> which is what she was doing in the previous episode with, you know, her daughter like being really manipulative and kind of sneaky and underhanded and it's leading to a good emotional you know sort of thing for her but it also it's also like that's kind of shitty i don't yeah i mean it's in character it is in character for her she will skirt boundaries and and push the edge of things okay so i'm going to assume that this aspect of the story you're not into. Yeah, it just, I don't know. It's, it's laying it on a little thick to have him sitting in Janeway's ready room. <laughs> I do like the touch of the uh, crater wall outside, though I don't think it, the geometry quite matches the external shot, but that's a comparatively small complaint. Yeah, I'm happy that they're going for it. I, I always like seeing a strange... Something out the window, yeah, yeah. Um... It's just... Uh, like when they're on a planet, too. Yeah, it, it's just one of those... Um, how to put it? Uh, it's it, it just... Uh, it's cutesy. I don't know. Just it's, it's annoying. I suppose another episode that this is similar to is uh, the one with the Bajoran mind control guy. Oh, God. <laughs> Ugh. They may have even reused some of these uh, props yeah. in the, the doctor mind control area. Uh, I've been I like that there's this it. idealistic doctor who's like, how can you possibly be diagnosing this many people with this thing? Like, you know, what's going on here? And he's sort of an officious dickwad who's, you know, throwing his weight around. It, a lot of this just kind of worked for me. It's not great. Oh, no. I will Every individual element was fine. Nothing was bad. I just think, I think there is a, especially if you're going to spend a two-parter, I think there's a epic episode in here. And I think they made, I think they needed one more pass to really um, make it work that at that level. Like, again, it's not that I think it's bad. I think it's that there is a, there is a five in here and I'm only flirting between the three and the four between for each part. Yeah, I'm with you. I mean, a five is off the table. I, I agree. It, it's not maybe not focused enough or it doesn't go deep enough into some aspect or other. Um, and maybe that, and it's, it, it, I've been thinking about season seven of Voyager for a while. Looking at the list, I'm like, there does feel, I don't know, a touch of senioritis or... 
going through the motions or kind of just tying up the loose ends. I don't know. Just, uh, and maybe had they done this episode sooner in the series, it could have really been energized and, you know, pushed somewhere. Like, yeah. Like, and, and maybe, Maybe it just has too much in common with previous episodes. Like we've been sitting here for an hour and a half going over, you know, Killing Game, Inner Lights. Uh, like there, there's a host of episodes that this shares DNA with. And I don't think the episode ever really creates like a really powerful voice for what this episode is. So does the Killing Game work better than this? Uh, the Killing Game has more novelty in the first part. I mean, it's got Nazis. Right. Which, remember when we only needed figurative narrative Nazis? Remember <laughs> that? Remember that time when the Nazis yeah. only existed in fiction? Yeah, and it's like, whoa, Nazis. You never see that. Right. And they're unambiguously bad. Remember that time? Remember <laughs> that time? Oh, Kevin, there's very fine people on both sides. Oh, God. Ugh. Um, that was a joke, by the way, just for anyone listening. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was sarcasm. In case we're, in case it isn't clear on the transcript, it's sarcasm. Yeah. Um, uh, is it? Uh, I suppose my problems with Killing Game are relate are are kind of similar to my problems here, though to a lesser extent in, in here than in Killing Game. Well, there's I, the same sort of obvious. Is this really the most efficient way to get what you want? Well, also. <laughs> I feel like this started life in a writer's room as a cool idea for a scene or a character or a piece of dialogue. And then they walked backward to get there. Like, yeah, they were like, what if Janeway woke up in a strange world and didn't know she was captain? Like, that was the pitch. Right. right? And I just, there's a, here, here's the thing. I feel over the course of these two episodes so far, there haven't been a ton of emotional stakes, even with Janeway's relationship with Jaffin. It's it's very, it's very beige. This is a very beige relationship, you know. Like maybe it's because the actor they cast is just kind of generically handsome and not like specifically handsome. That's a very. I, I, I've been drinking because Ruth Bader Ginsburg is dead, um, so I'm articulating this badly, but. His handsomeness is very nondescript. Um, He's handsome in a way because he is not unattractive, where there's nothing really about this, like, I specifically like you. That's what I feel. Yeah, he could be in, like, a a watch ad or a a Dockers commercial or something. Exactly. So there's nothing, there's no charge to really give, to breathe the life into these fake lives that would make this really sizzle for me. I agree. And I think that that is the difference between this and Inner Light. Uh, in Inner Light, they were able to make us care about I that think about, like, I can think about Helene and get a little choked up right here, right now. <laughs> like, well, And they gave it the backdrop of a planet experiencing climate change, you know, which was a very prophetic story for 1992 or whenever it was. God, if (laughs) I'm going to go to sleep tonight and a very nice middle-aged woman is going to remind me to put away my shoes and I'm going to lose my mind. (laughs) 
Oh God, the world's ending. Um, so yeah, I, I just, this needed a set, this needed one more pass. This, this needed someone who wasn't, who didn't write the first draft to go, what are you doing here? What is this for really zero in? It's a little diffuse. Diffuse is the word I will use. There's a lot of good story here, but it's kind of like, it's like the entire thing is at a six out of 10, maybe or a five out of 10, and no individual moment gets to that eight, nine or 10 out of 10. It's a large chunk of competent entertainment. Oh yeah, nothing's bad. There are no missteps. There's nothing here that makes me go, ugh. I completely agree. Like, I'm giving this either a three and a three, maybe, or a four and a three, I think at this point, um, would be where I'm at numbers-wise. Um, I want to want to give this a t- tens across the board. I, I, and I think, especially because they spent the time on the sets and the guest actors and the, th- and the numerous plot threads and two episodes of story, like, here, here's may- maybe the solution is this. They have so many people not on Voyager taking up time in the episode and we have so much of their lives ostensibly is the idea that they are living new lives on this planet. You, if they had treated this like the backdoor pilot for a new series in a way, like not, not saying they actually make a new series, but just like, you know, when you watch an episode of TV, especially in like the eighties or nineties where it's like, who are all these new people telling this tangentially related story? It's because they're setting up a new series. I think had they approached it from a sense of, make this story stand on its own unrelated to Voyager. Maybe that would have been what threaded the needle for me. They're just, everything works fine. This episode is fine, but the bones of the story kind of indicate we should have been able to muster better than fine. I could totally see this as a setup for like a J.J. Abrams mystery box show. You know, a bunch of people wake up and one person thinks they're not where they should be, but everybody else is oblivious. And then they drag out the mystery for like six seasons and, you know, tease it out and all that that stuff. You know, speaking of two-parters that use a lot of resources, how would you feel about comparing this to Time's Arrow? Uh, I would say Time's Arrow is better. It's it's tighter. Time, time. Oh, sorry. Not. I, I was thinking of future. I said Time's Arrow, but I was picturing Future's End in my head. I like. I think Future's End is a better two part than this. I think Future's End is better because it has a villain. And, and Future's End has a tighter focus. Like there is a clear. There are two goals. Get back to your time, prevent blowing up. Great, perfect. And all of the fun fish out of water stuff works. And Ed Begley Jr. is curiously good as a douchey villain. Time's Arrow, okay. I I have a very soft spot for Time's Arrow because it was one of the first 
10 episodes I watched. Like, I started watching Next Gen chronologically, like, in real time toward the end of the fifth season. So Time's Arrow was one of the first handful of episodes I watched. So I have a soft spot for it because it is fun and expansive and it is, you know, it's, it's a hoot. Uh, it's just, you know, watching these, watching them all do Shakespeare, charming as fuck. Yeah. Um, but the reason I bring it up is because it's a two-parter that has, you know, they go way into the back lot. They've got Jerry Harden as Mark Twain, you know, like it, it's got a lot of similar like effort. Um, but then it ultimately sort of the stories, the story doesn't is just, become awesome. Yeah. It's just, it's just sort of pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and like they tease the data head thing, but then it doesn't really have any emotional impact. It's like, oh yeah, we found his head and then we just put it back on his body and he was totally normal again. <laughs> I'm like, really? Uh, I would say that many hundreds pro- of years? I probably enjoy, I, I enjoy Time Zero more than I enjoy this one. That might be because of my affection for the characters. Mark Twain is a riot. You know what? If Mark Twain showed up in Workforce, that might fix it for me. Um, <laughs> um, there's, there's more there. there there's, you, you got Whoopi Goldberg and Mark Twain. I'd, I'd watch that show. I'd, I would watch them on a road trip. Give me a two-hour buddy comedy of Whoopi Goldberg and Jerry Harden doing Mark Twain. Good time had by all. Well, there's at least a series worth of adventures of Guinan on Earth in the 19th century. Totally. You know, Good God. What the yeah. hell was she doing there? Did anybody find her out? You know, like. Yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah I'd read that. There's a book. Write that book. Someone write that book. Great book. Um, I, I just. Yeah. Every element of the episode. Well, the other thing that was not paid off in Time Zero was the Guinan Picard backstory. Oh yeah, that was, let's, let's not even. We, we, we discussed that when we discussed Time Zero, it's done. Um, but uh, for, go, getting back to this episode, I just, this episode was pleasant and enjoyable. I don't deny that. I, I just think they put so much work into so much of it that it's kind of surprising that I don't like it more than I do. All right. Well, we're coming near the end of this second part. So I, I will say that I think the first episode is a three and the second episode is a four. And the reason I think the second is a four is because of the really terrific work by Roxanne Dawson and Kate Mulgrew. So with Roxanne Dawson, it's sort of recovering her memories in a very beautiful way. Mm. And with Kate Mulgrew, it's resisting the recovery of her memories because she, it's, it's kind of like when you're waking up from a dream and you're, you're just trying to push your head into the pillow a little, a little harder just to stay there, even though, you know, on like a 50 to 60% level that it's bullshit and that you're going to have to go to work anyway, you know, (laughs) So, and then add to that the detective story, which works for me. You know, I, I like, I've been watching a lot of detec- detective fiction lately, and I enjoy watching someone sort of pick up the breadcrumbs and put them together. And I think they did it in a pretty effective way for the detective character in this. 
Um, I, I totally agree that overall it's just sort of pretty good. Yeah, I, I actually, I think I'm kind of the reverse. I think it's a four, then a three, just because the, 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 the tease of what's going on is a little more interesting than the actual resolution. But actually, two sevens in a row, I think actually makes sense for this episode. We've, we've never landed on a score this early, but it's been an hour and a half. You know, we, we, got, we got, what, five minutes left. We, we don't need to drag this out. But yeah, I would say four, then three, just because I find the, the tickle of what is going on here is actually a little more interesting than the, than the specifics of the result. I will stipulate that um, uh, Roxanne Dawson's acting in those scenes was fantastic. Um, I do wish that I felt more about Janeway and Jaffin. I, th- I just think that would be a better, like, yeah, I, maybe there's just, there's, yeah, it, it, there's so many threads. There's the there's the detective thread, the crew thread, the Janeway romance thread. It, it, there's a lot going on, and it, maybe it just never coalesces in the way that I needed to to really punch me in the gut the way I think the setup could. Let me ask you this. This is a sort of I really like this scene too, by the way, of Tom watching cartoons. Uh, it's it's a really interesting just little coda to the story, which puts the emphasis on the Tom Bellana relationship, which I'm all all about. And having her watch him watch the cartoons, yeah, it's re- it's a sweet emotional moment, yeah. Um, which is actually kind of reminiscent of the episode in which they relive the uh, war crime. Mm-hmm from the monument. Uh, <laughs> so yes, <laughs> there's, a, there's a lot of things that are being sort of recapitulated here. Okay, let me ask you this. Here's, a, here's an oddball suggestion. What if the thing that takes Janeway out of her moment is Chakotay declaring his love for her? like bitch i built you a bathtub right which yeah he did he 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 carved her a bathtub that yeah it's not just like he he didn't just ikea that shit he carved it um honestly honestly i would give this episode a six out of five for that level of balls (laughs) um because here's 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 the thing the ship has probably sailed on that relationship I'm, i'm aware i'm aware um, and I, I would, that being said, I, I would give it a seven out of five because it would mean retroactively that we couldn't have the episode we're about to have next week, uh, where we decide, uh, Chakotay's consolation prize is seven <laughs> of nine. Um, yeah. but uh, here, here, my thing is I actually really love an episode where it's like, I'm doing my normal thing in the normal way that I normally do, but for various reasons, I'm going to end this episode in a new status quo. I think that's just great storytelling. Like if you can make me experience a normal day, but somehow justify me experiencing a change as a result, great fucking storytelling. I, all credit to the acting here. Janeway really nails this scene. She's not staying, obviously, but she really, she did nail it. Love it. Great actress, blah, blah, blah. 
Well, and they're they're doing good stuff here with Captain on the Bridge, and you know, yeah. And um, you, you can see she's still not one hundred. She's like ninety percent comfortable. Yeah, and she's doing that really well. Yeah. Okay. So if but back this, to your, your back to your hypothetical. This had this, happened. That would have that would have been the thing the episode needs to really sing, because then you it it, it justifies the entire exercise, because now it's like. We, we attenuated the lives of these crew, of the crew. We show Janeway open to a relationship. Like, like we put Janeway in a situation where what's it like if she's in a position to give herself permission to have a relationship? And it works like gangbusters with a guy who kind of looks like Chakotay and yeah. Mark for that matter. Well, so it changes both characters because she would become able to be like, you know what? Yeah, I, I, I need a good deep dicking and I'm going to just going to go for it. And then, <laughs> and then it would also change Chicote because he would see that she's in a relationship. He would become naturally jealous and he would fight for her, yeah. you know, and then it changes the status quo by the end and they're just in a relationship. And then we're in Orville territory, which would be very interesting. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, Any. If you want, yeah, there, there's something really narratively interesting to me of characters doing what they've always done, but still ending up in a different status quo because there's there's drama in there. Um, yeah, that would have done it. That would have, if, if nothing else, for of all the of all of the various options we've discussed, that's a pretty solid way to give it some meaning. And then, and maybe by this point in my lived experience of watching Voyager in the 90s and early 2000s, the reset button had become fairly fatiguing. Because it's not like Next Gen, you know, did a ton of serialized storytelling, but they did, a, you know, occasionally would allow the episode to, to hang there for a moment. And then Deep Space Nine ran with that ball. So... Anytime Voyager meant Voyager spent a two hour, you know, 90 minutes of episode to get the characters back to where they were last week. Yeah. Yeah. In TNG, you know, you, you felt progression even without huge events. Right. The, because you know. the characters grew like, season, it's like Jordy becomes chief engineer and now he's just chief engineer, you know, but even, even beyond that, even in terms of like acting choices, like, Troy and Riker in particular are different adults in season seven than they are in season three, you know? Or season one for that matter. Se yeah. Certainly season one. But like, there's a, like, even if, even if it doesn't require like a real narrative break, there's a, there's a coloring to the accumulation of experiences that does really land. It's what makes, you know, second chances in season six work so well because it's basically such a meditation on who these people have become like like without ever giving us a big make or break will they, will they won't they should they shouldn't they will they get back together episode between season one and season six second chances still managed to be the coda on a should they get back together story and that's what was missing from Voyager for me. As we get to the end of Voyager, I have been thinking a lot about my macro thoughts on Voyager. And I think the, the, the over-reliance on the reset button and the lack of trust of even a syndicated audience, like, you know what? If you start your story in media res 
but the characters are well-defined, the action understandable, and the story beats recognizable, you actually don't have to explain a lot. Here's a fun story. I recently started watching Succession with a friend of mine. Great fucking show. We accidentally watched season one, episode one of season two, instead of season one because HBO Max is a terrible platform. And you know what? We kept up. We're like, wow, they're really not explaining anything. We just have to go with it. (laughs) But the acting was clear. The story beats were clear. And the feelings were were just like, okay, I get it. I know who all these people are. I know what they want. I know why they're doing what they're doing. And I'm watching them do it. So even though we actually watched the wrong episode, I could still keep up. And I had a great time. And then we were all embarrassed about how badly we botched watching TV. But it just, if the episode, yeah, here's the thing. Picard feels durably changed after Inner Light. Even without the follow-up episodes of him playing the flute or, or, or uh, lessons, you still get the sense, just the internal emotional sense in the way Patrick Stewart is acting the character that, Pat, that Captain Picard has been permanently, irrevocably altered by his experiences in Inner Light. And it's what makes you. It's what makes you care. And then, and then you know, you know, half a season later, e- even in a fairly weak episode like Fistful of Datas, Picard just playing his little flute. You're like, oh the oh the flute. Oh, I'm I'm gonna cry because he's with the with the with the flute. Like there was that was what was missing. And any of that, and even yeah, just Chakotay using this as the opportunity to be like, look we should clearly be together would be enough to make this whole episode feel like a tentpole of the series as opposed to just a pleasantly competent outing. All right. Yeah, well, obviously I agree with you because I brought it up in the first place. But (laughs) um, so it's a three and a four for me. And a four and, and a three for me. <laughs> um, which I think pretty well yeah. encapsulates the quality of what, what goes on here. Yeah, slightly above average is, is what this is. <laughs> well, we gave time zero, uh, each of us gave each episode a four. So it was two eights. Yeah. Um, whereas this would be two sevens. Um, that, and that sounds right, because... Even with the flaws we identified in Time's Arrow, maybe we were just younger then and happier and more generous. I don't know. Um, no, I think Time's Arrow is better. Yeah, I, I, there's a scale, there's a scope. There's, there's, you, you got Whoopi Goldberg and Mark Twain just acting for the rafters. And that's, the, it just punches every, and, and even in like the, the softer part, like as, as much as they kind of tease Data's death and then resolve it immediately, you get some, like, I still quote my positronic pathways have become accustomed to your inputs as a definition of friendship. I still think about that. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, there's, there's a, th- okay, there's a, there's a good, there's a good comparison. Even for what we, like, we know Data's not going to die. We know that. I know that. You know that. Everyone knows that. But in the gray space they created in that episode, 
rather than the they didn't just tease us will data die is he gonna die do you think he's gonna die they gave us a scene of his friends feeling things and feeling things about their feelings and feeling things about data and being like i'm sorry i'm acting weird with you because it's not your fault and like like that little scene on the turbo lift where he's like oh you stopped talking when i walk in the room and no we didn't yes we did we're sorry that's still good that's great character work and and that's the kind of stuff like as silly as the conceit of times arrow may be we got a fun outing plus really good character work inside the bounds of the characters we knew about and that's what makes it more fun to watch like there 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 that little push like like even even if you wanted to set aside Janeway and her relationships, have Tom and Bellana learn something about each other. What does it mean that they're still attracted to each other? What does it mean that Tom is still hitting on anything in a skirt? Or what what does it mean that Bellana responded such a way to like there's 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 shading you can give those scenes, even if you don't want to upset the isolated nature of the episode to tell me something about their relationship that I hadn't thought about or experienced before. I do think they get close to that uh, with <coughs> her reading the personal logs yeah. and sort of being his shepherd back to recovering his memory. Yeah, I, I just think there was one more scene when they interacted rather than just acted next to each other. Yeah. But I agree with that. Yeah, we're 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 getting a little in the in the weeds. I think I think we've we've stated our major point about eight times now, but um but yeah, it's a it's a good okay. episode. Let me ask you this, yeah. because I do have to bash Kurtzman Trek at some point in this podcast. Um why does a scene like or why do scenes like in Time Zero where characters have emotional reactions to the death of a character that you know will be reversed? Why do those work? Whereas in Picard, you have very similar scenes. You know Picard is not going to die. They, they telegraph it to shit, you know, from nearly the beginning of the finale that he's going to turn into an android, you know. Uh, and yet they give us the scenes of his compatriots reacting poorly to his impending death. And yet that's interminable. It's horrible. And I hate it. It's schmaltzy and dumb and stupid, and it insults me. Why does that insult me, but Time Zero doesn't? Um, because in Picard, they were, in, they were acting grief at a death that was immediately going to be undone. And in Time's Arrow, they were processing anxiety about a death that was... Un, like, it, it's, a, it's, it's a narrow shading, but... The characters in Picard were grieving a death that had happened that was very, we knew, very shortly going to be undone, and it nullifies the grief. It, it, it makes the grief moot. The response of the characters, in, and in particular, Picard, Geordi, Riker, and Troy, their response to the possibility of Data's death, something they honestly had never considered, gave us insight to how the characters relate to each other, and it endures even if Data doesn't die. 
the the emotion like Picard becomes a different captain for a minute like he becomes a kind of bad captain for a hot second he's like I'm not sending the best people with the best equipment because I'm anxious about losing a friend uh Jordy doesn't know how to process it and and again the Troy and Riker scene really is just some great a-class writing it's like like you you even get counselor Troy being a good counselor she analogizes this information to finding out a friend has a terminal illness and all of the all of the grief and anxiety and pulling away and good and bad reactions we have when we find out someone we love is sick now apply to data and it's hard because it's hard for itself and it's hard because it's literally unexpected no one ever thought data would die and that so Data not dying by the end of time's arrow doesn't moot everything we learned about how people feel about data. Picard being resurrected immediately cheapens the grief they were performing moments ago. So I agree with that. I also think the simple fact of the matter is we don't understand the characters and their relationships because they're so poorly developed over the preceding nine episodes. Um, you know, it's like Rios had some other captain who killed himself and that made him sad. Why does he give a shit about Picard? I don't know. You know, Raffi hated Picard because he abandoned her, but now she loves Picard. Why? I don't know. Well, I would I would accept that she would really she would feel genuine grief either way. It's not like the people you don't like anymore. It's easier to process their death. Like maybe there's something else there too. There was some gradation in how the characters in Times Arrow processed it. Picard was snippy and controlling. Um, Riker was undefinably angry Jordy was at a loss Troy relied on her professional skills like there were shadings in how they got I'm, I, do I have to go back and give Time Zero a higher score just <laughs> like all of the characters responded in established character traits to this information and it had shadings all of the characters in Picard were just grief stricken and they well, were the seven of nine so full of grief like she just met him. Well, I think they knew each other, but 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 they, they would they should other? they should all process that grief in unique ways. And because the grief lasted so briefly, we never got a sense of that. So yeah, I if nothing, the short answer to your question, here we are at minute 300, um, is just that the reason Times Arrow felt better is everyone's reactions felt organic to the characters as written to that point and was not mooted by the eventual action because because there's the thing like and i keep coming back to troy troy quoting data about the nature of friendship just gets me every time i'm getting choked up sitting here um but it's just we look we we were the the setup of the episode granted us an insight into how these characters feel about each other it articulated those feelings in a way they hadn't before at least that specifically 
And that was what, that's what's missing from the modern versions where, again, I know the day is going to be saved. Like, I know that, I know that I've known at the end of every Star Trek episode, except for a handful of Deep Space Nine episodes, that everything's going to come out right in the end. That doesn't make the journey pointless. The journey is what's interesting, in fact. <laughs> um, so that, that yeah, I, I think it's I think it's a pretty sure, I think it's an easily definable line. If you if you want to still end up with everything being okay in the end, you still have to have the characters do feel, think, say, change in some way that makes the journey worth the effort. And that's what Tian which Picard utterly failed at doing. Yeah, well, it's yeah, it's just Abrams and his disciples just think the plot is the the plot is not the interesting part. The characters and their re, and the relationships and reactions are the interesting part. Like even in the most out there science fiction, I honestly only care about the people, and you you use the setup to exaggerate, invert question push poke prod morph those relationships but that's what i'm like that's what i'm always going to ultimately respond to like you're like you come like it turning out you were lying about one of the characters and their motivations the whole time is not interesting the character finding out that someone else has been lying about their motivations that's interesting it's not, you being clever is not interesting. Characters reacting to things, that's interesting. But, but that's just me. All right, so uh, dual sevens for Workforce Parts 1 and 2. It was real Star Trek, and I enjoyed it on the level that I enjoy real Star Trek. <laughs> um, it wasn't great, but it was pretty good. Yeah, it was, yeah, it was, it was, it was modestly above average. I'm sad that it couldn't have been great because I think there is great in this story, but you know, here we are. It's 2020. <laughs> All right. Well, good night and good luck. Live long and prosper. Uh, I hope you're still there to listen to this, somebody in the future. Um, We're very sorry we didn't stop global warming. We tried. We did. Yeah. Yeah, we did. Uh, it is what it is. You know, Kevin, it'll just get cooler. Scientists don't really understand these things. But the, the market will provide a solution. Oh, yes. I'm sure, I'm sure the free market will fix it because uh, it's not the cause of the problem. Uh, yeah. <laughs> this is all sarcasm. Okay. Joel Andrew. Good night. <laughs> <laughs>